0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. I am uh, honored to have Keith Weiner back on the program once again. Last time, uh, if you guys haven't checked it out, I suggest going to check out the episode. We had a fascinating discussion, and now you've got the inside scoop for me on why the entire world is not going to abandon the dollar. So first, uh, welcome to the show uh, for Monetary Metals. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you back on.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob
0: absolutely so i was one of these suckers for uh you know i read the wall street journal and i'm fascinated by kind of uh i i mean the us we get to print a lot of money we get to spend a lot of money and it's because the entire world uses our currency i'm kind of a sucker for the narrative that we fought wars to kind of make sure that people are continuing to use our currency and then i looked at what was going on with russia that we were punishing them And I fell for this narrative of, oh, look, we're weaponizing the dollar. No one's going to work on work with us anymore. People are going to stop using it. We're screwed. And then someone sent me your post that was basically saying it's not going to happen in the world of uh, I almost look at currency like pieces of turd right now that the U.S. dollar just smells a little bit less. (laughs) And (laughs)
1: I've heard heard the least dirty shirt. (laughs)
0: even more apt analogy that's essentially what it is so i'll hand it back to you if you can tell people uh why the world's not going to be w- walking away from dollars and why it isn't feasible at this time
1: you know so so first it has to be said you know they're all poop and they're all varying degrees of you know and i, I almost feel like i'm getting into medical stuff here to you know consistency viscosity <laughs> you know, how smelly they are and different colors and, you know, what's in it. You can see the person eat corn or whatever, not to get too graphic, but that they all are that. Um, And the whole system is on its way to failing as I've written, I don't know, probably millions of words on that topic. Um, So nothing that I'm about to say is in any way saying, you know, go team dollar, the dollar is great. That's not what this is about at all. This is about, I guess to put it in game theory terms, you kind of have a an equilibrium that's been established, and although all the individual players might wish for it to be otherwise, it kind of is what it is, and uh, there isn't there isn't a mechanism and there isn't a process to um, you know just just abandon the dollar as it were. So um, that's that's sort of the preamble to that you know, as you get into the nitty gritty of it, number one, I think this is a point that is is often missed. All the other currencies are dollar derivatives. So if you were to declare, let's have a basket of currencies, and let's even go so far as to exclude the dollar entirely. Of course, if you had a basket of currencies on a trade-weighted basis or on a reserve-weighted basis, it would be a majority dollar basket. So then what, what, what are we accomplishing there? We're jumping out of the frying pan, back into the frying pan on the other side of the frying pan. Right. Um, Suppose you were to exclude the dollar. So we're gonna have a basket of all of the other leading currencies. Everybody knows the first guy to fly across the Atlantic in an airplane was Charles Lindbergh. Does anybody know the second? You know, who was was the first guy to step on the moon? You know, Neil Armstrong, who was the second? Um, You know, everybody knows Facebook is the premier social media site. How many people remember the second? So, you know, the second is often a distant, not even remotely close by a country mile um, second. And that's exactly what it is in currencies. So if you were to take a basket of the second and the third and the fourth, all the way down to the 170, I don't know how many countries there are in the world, and create some sort of um, currency basket and then create some sort of derivative credit based on that, um, you'd find that, and this is the underappreciated problem. They're all dollar derivatives anyways. So it's like, we don't like, um, Apple shares anymore. Instead, we're all going to start using December Apple calls and the the Apple call, the call on the Apple share is a derivative of the Apple share itself. So you're not really actually getting away from the dollar. All you're doing is you're putting it behind a screen and you're drawing the curtain and now, you know, you feel better about it, perhaps emotionally, but what what have you accomplished? Um, But aside from from that problem, the next problem is none of the other currencies have the liquidity or the depth to deal with the flows. If you're China and you need to buy or sell, your transaction size are not measured in hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. You're throwing around billions of dollars and if you're to dump billions of dollars into any other currency in any other government bond market within that currency, there's no other currency that can absorb the flows. So what you get, is if you're if you're buying, you push the price up, and of course all the traders in that market will get wind of what you're doing, and in fact will front run you. So the problem is even more exaggerated than it would need to be, strictly speaking. So the market, I suppose it's trading, let's say normal is 100. You find that you're buying at 120, and then when you need to sell later, you find that you're selling for 80 or 75. So you're inflicting on yourself. It's an enormous self-inflicted wound where you're taking a gun and. You know shooting yourself in the foot um in order to get away from the dollar so there are a lot of dynamics like this uh, that it just doesn't work to just say we're going to abandon the dollar um the system is cemented in place it is what it is the dollar has enormous network effects i i, I you know probably the best poster child for network effect is ebay you know, if you want to buy a Cabbage Patch doll for your kid, you go to eBay. Why? Because that's where all the sellers of Cabbage Patch dolls are. If you want to sell a Cabbage Patch doll when your kid is done with it, you go to eBay because that's where all the buyers are. Once that's cemented in place, what would have to happen for eBay to somehow be displaced? It can't be done. Um, you know, even even if the eBay CEO were to be accused of some heinous crime involving pedophilia and drugs, or I don't know what you know, that person might go off to jail, but you know, that wouldn't take down the company. eBay would just announce here's the new CEO and life would go on, it can't be displaced. And I think it's the same thing with the dollar. So we have a situation that is, um, nobody likes it. If you travel around the rest of the world, this is absolutely true. Everybody is full of complaints about how the dollar, well, it's it's kind of funny, it's a love-hate relationship. For their personal decision-making, it's dollars. You know, We talked to pension funds in Southeast Asia and their balance sheets are denominated in dollars. So everyone's using the dollar, everyone pre- prefers the dollar, everybody of any degree of wealth in China is, so they have capital controls in China, which means it's illegal to dump your yuan and get dollars outside of China. When you break the law in China, terrible, terrible things can happen to you. You can be disappeared. You know, you, there's no Geneva Convention there. I mean, bad, bad things can happen. They're risking their lives to do it, and they all do, to evade the capital controls and dump them you on and buy dollars. So in a certain sense, they hate the dollar, but in a certain sense, everybody, when it comes to their own personal money, is choosing the dollar because of liquidity, because it's universally uh, recognized and accepted, um, because it's the least stinky poop, uh, the, you know, the, the least untrustworthy um, You know counterfeit credit in the world um and and so on but you know there's certainly a lot of resentment against america for the dollar system and what it does to them and yet it's cemented in place and nobody's in a position to to um you know bust it loose
0: so it's such an interesting phenomenon because uh we certainly are abusing the privilege So you have that there's a network effect. Everyone's using the dollar. It's almost like we're the banker if you were playing Monopoly and you know that that guy is consistently stealing money, but you're like, we're just kind of too lazy to establish another banker. Now, obviously, there's more friction in this world currency game of creating a new banker, uh, but it is odd that you know amongst all the world powers, I guess everyone has enough uh, skin in the game of keeping the dollar alive. Uh, that they all kind of just allow us to overprint and overspend and you know devalue the asset uh, because they all everyone just kind of recognizes oh we're stuck with this thing. Uh, now d- do you see like what would need to happen that other countries actually said all right it's enough of this like does that c- could that ever happen or is it just so established and this network effect is like so established there's just no pathway to it.
1: Yeah, there, there's no pathway. It's not a matter of saying I don't like it um you know I, I imagine you know followers of your show you know don't like the dollar either maybe into gold or bitcoin or whatever imagine you know for anybody watching this imagine going to your boss and saying i'm done with the dollar i want you to pay me in gold now you just don't have that pricing power the boss is going to say no if you push it he's going to say there's the door <laughs> you you're just not in that position to make that demand right, right? and so um, I, the other thing that needs to be said is the whole regime, the whole dollar system is failing. It's just that it's not going to be replaced by another irredeemable paper currency. Um, so there's a quote from from um, Churchill, which I'm going to completely botch the, the punchline. Um, but, uh, you know, the quote is basically, you know, God bless those Americans. After they've tried everything else, eventually they'll do the right, they'll try the right thing, um, you know. At, at, God bless the world after after they're done experimenting with irredeemable currency they then they'll try gold. Gold will be the one thing left standing that the world will have to use no matter that nobody wants gold. When you talk to people whether they're, you know, wealthy traders, whether they're bankers, whether they're Wall Street financiers, um, you know, or the average person on the street, there's an antipathy to gold, you know, for the most part certainly as a standard. A lot of people would say yeah you know I, I have a few ounces of gold in my portfolio but um gold will be the one thing that ends up because nothing else worked um and uh so the, the system is, is shifting but it's going to be forced you know so you say okay what would cause somebody if somebody let's say somebody um uses margin credit to buy uh, a meme um, a meme stock or a meme stonk um you know what what would make that person? You know give that up and he's doing it because he's sticking it to the man and he's getting the hedge funds and whatever it is he believes a margin call And right? a margin call forces the abandonment of the position that even if he didn't want to he no longer has a choice in the matter because he's facing uh, a capital shortfall in his account so you know, there are things that can happen in the future that will force a change but it isn't going to be uh you know any one participant um yeah and to, and to your point about um and all the participants, there's there's so many perverse incentives in the system. It's almost like a giant um, you know criminal cartel of some sort. Uh, the free economics guys do some interesting research on this. I think it was them looking at you know what the um life expectancy of the of a, of a soldier in a drug gang in la is? Like life expectancy is a year and a half or something. I mean, it's, it's such a high lethality right. environment. The actual pay they're getting is less than minimum wage. It's so, the thrill of the
0: game, living on the edge. You know, but what what keeps that
1: gang stable? What keeps the kids coming into it? And, you know, the guy at the top is, is making billions of dollars or certainly hundreds of millions, but it's a giant pyramid and the people even not too far down are really not making a lot of money. But there's a lot of dynamics of what keeps it stable, even though it's a, it's a terrible deal. For all the people who support the structure of that pyramid and that's kind of what the dollar is it's a lousy deal but everybody in the world in their respective positions you know is benefiting they understand the order number one and they're benefiting in some way from it personally um and so you know it continues and it continues long past where everybody would want it to
0: So I do have a question in the chat, which uh, I I think is uh, on point for this conversation. So I'll read it to you. It's from Omega Supreme with cheese. When you have India buying direct from Russia, China buying from Saudi and one, you have half the world's population moving against the dollar. So is this actually feasible that, you know, like slowly these markets are being created that are not being financed in dollars that people start storing more of other currencies? Or is that just... It, it, we're not talking about that big of an impact or it's not really going to happen.
1: So I would not say that um, the use of another currency as a medium of exchange is a move against the dollar as a reserve, reserve refers to a, a balance sheet. It's what is what is being held on the asset side of the balance sheet. So the question is if if yuan is being used in in trade between two other countries, do either of those cur- currency countries, actually prefer to hold that currency um you know long before the transaction and long after the transaction so all the currencies are fungible you go to the market and you trade your whether it's your Indian rupee well now not Russian ruble obviously is locked out of the system but you trade that yuan you trade that euro you trade that rupee you trade that Brazilian real whatever currency you can name you can trade it in a millisecond so if your if your policy is to hold dollars but now you're you're getting oil. So when uh, when Russia is selling oil to India, you know they're selling it at a discount of tw- about twenty dollars a barrel right now. So it's another good example of there's not the pricing power that a lot of people assume that there is. You go to your boss and say, "My cost of living went up. Give me a fifty thousand dollar raise." You find out you don't have that pricing power. You're Russia, and you say, "I've got some oil to dump," and you find you don't have that pricing power. You know there's sanctions. There's a lot of other reasons and India is saying, okay, we'll take it, but only if you give us a discount. And then it's a, right now it's about a $20 a barrel discount, which is pretty significant. So uh, is, is India choosing to hold Yuan, or did India dump some dollars to get the Yuan to give to Russia because Russia can't take dollars because they're locked out of the system? And then who actually wants to hold Yuan anyway? Every wealthy person in China, presumably they understand the unsoundness of their own currency better than anyone else, is risking his life to dump a yuan and buy dollars. Now we're saying that sovereign governments are going to actually prefer to hold yuan? I call me very skeptical of that.
0: <laughs> and then uh, just to a- add to that, uh, I-, I know that China's been accused of currency manipulation, and that's essentially, uh, you would understand the mechanics better than I uh, would, but it seems to me like uh, they do not want their currency to appreciate in value because they're more interested in exports, so for another currency to step in and I guess want to, you know, try and take the dollar on, they'd also want their currency to actually, you know, appreciate in value, which it doesn't seem like any player wants.
1: No, they all they all accept the mercantilist, um, which is a fallacy, but they all accept the mercantilist belief. But I think in the case of China, you know, given that every person of any wealth is. Risking his life to dump as much Yuan as he can get through the capital controls. I think so, so China has capital controls, right? That means he doesn't trade freely. Is that the same thing as manipulation? I'll, you know, leave that question unanswered for now. But if they were to open up their capital account and allow free buying and selling of their currency, um, I think the great fear, and with very good reason, is that it would absolutely collapse. It would be an utter wipeout of the Yuan if they were to allow all their citizens who want to dump it to dump it. Um, so maybe the official story is they're worried it would appreciate too much. That makes it look better than, than it really is. And of course that's what, you know, socialist countries have always done. They've always put a good face on it. Um, you know, I don't know where the currency would be, but I suspect it would be a lot lower than it is if they allowed, if they allowed their own citizens to sell. All
0: right. And so let's move into the the next part of this conversation, which is, uh, people are looking at all the money that's been printed, over the last couple of years and going, Hey, this is why price is going up. I don't know why as half of my face frozen on your side, I feel like yes, two face over here. All right. I, I don't know why that is, but what are you going to do? Not a tech person. Um, it, all right. So a lot of people, including myself, I look at all the money the fed has printed all the money that they've put into the system and spent. And I go, obviously prices are going up. You take a, a different approach and there's uh certainly uh kind of multiple layers here to your approach, but in the article that you put out, uh, and I do recommend, I'll link it into the episode description. I do think that it is a worthwhile read. Uh, you point to some of the other dynamics that are pushing up pricing at this time. Uh, so I'll hand it back to you so maybe you can educate the listeners on uh, some of the other you know, things that are going on in the marketplace that are driving up your prices.
1: So obviously, you have war in Ukraine. Ukraine is, I think, um, one of the biggest producers of wheat. Um, Russia is one of the bigger producers of oil. Um, there's also production of nickel, um, neon, which is used in making lasers, which is used in semiconductor manufacturing, um, all kinds of things that are now suddenly going offline or going to be radically reduced in production. So the energy experts think that the war in Ukraine is going to take $3 million a day, uh, 3 million barrels a day of oil production offline. Um, I'm not sure it'll go offline. I think it'll go through securitist routes. Russia will sell it to India and China, Um, logical buyers that aren't aren't necessarily going to heed U.S. sanctions. And so what will end up is oil will be going a lot more securitously. And then whoever India and China used to buy from will now be selling to Europe and and the U.S. And their oil is going to have to change pathways. So the only winners will probably be the, the Chinese will get a discount. And then um, the companies that manufacture the ships that are gonna need more ships because oil is gonna be going through longer, more secure routes, those will be the winners. But um, even before Ukraine, um, I've been writing about four non-monetary forces that push prices up. And um, I, I finally get a very interesting reaction in that I, I'd say maybe 20% of the, of the audience who reads this says, but Keith, there's always some proximate cause you can point to But as we know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And I'm like, but take a look at these factors. They're not monetary. Anyway, they can't quite get past it. Another another group are saying, but those factors just simply cause money printing and the money printing is the reason why. I'm like, but just focus on the argument here for a minute. So four non-monetary causes. Um, One is what I call useless ingredients. And I came up with that term as I think about gasoline manufacturers are forced to put either MBTE or ethanol into the gas. And um, that does not add anything good to the gasoline. In fact, it makes your horsepower slightly lower and it makes your fuel economy slightly worse. But it does add cost. So if you had just regular gas gas without ethanol in it, you know the price would be X, And then the ethanol adds, uh, I think the number is 25 cents a gallon. I don't know if that's right or not, something. So there's a $0.25 cent a gallon increase in cost, which probably means 30 or $0.35 cents of the pump, because everything is a markup on it. Um, useless ingredients are things that don't add any value. Um, the consumers don't want to pay for it, which is why it's done by, by force. Um, and usually the consumers aren't even aware of it. I mean, I think most people know that the you know, gas has additives in it. But in most cases, the useless ingredients, you don't even know about it. And so every time the regulators come along and, and force an additional useless ingredient, then you see the prices are going up and then people just say inflation, but it isn't inflation. It's, it's useless ingredients. Now that's the backdrop change and, and, and regulation is bad, but it's not changing radically you know, in, in our era. So that's, you know, change occurs with the margin of prices were skyrocketing in 2021. It's not because of regula- changes in regulation. Number two is green energy restrictions. So you could call that regulation, but I break it out into a separate category because there's some um, you know, important things going on there. But it's happening all over the world. So in New England, voters voted to um, uh, prohibit or block a pipeline to bring natural gas uh, to, to New England. Um, and at the same time, they also voted to block a electric transmission line from Hydro-Quebec into New England. So two sources of energy were blocked um as as some of your audience may know we have something called the jones act which is a protectionist measure it's illegal to i may not be summarizing exactly right um have a non-us flagged ship that wasn't made in the u.s and crewed by americans land in one port pick something up in america and then bring it to another port in america so whatever natural gas is being exported out of the big hubs in the in the um, gulf of mexico in texas and louisiana um that has to go uh to foreign lands you can't unless Why? it's an american ship but you know america doesn't have a shipmaking and ship industry that is other countries so that's that's for export only basically so if the price of energy in new england is skyrocketing this winter or did skyrocket this winter those would be some of the factors uh, one of my articles i addressed the uk which went way farther down this insane route than um, the New England did. So they passed two stupid laws. Um, one, basically banning domestic, so in the UK, demanding product, banning production of natural gas by banning fracking, which is how they produce it. And at the same time, another law forcing all the users of oil and coal to switch to natural gas, which now they're prohibited being made on shore and now has to be imported. So there's a synergy between those things. It's not 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's 1 plus 1 equals about 5 point something. Now you add to the, the next factor, which is the lockdown for COVID, and then there's a whiplash effect. You know, it's not like a VCR where you press pause and then you press, you know, play to, to unpause. It's more like, you know, you tighten the steel cable with a winch and tighten it tighter and tighter and tighter, and then you cut it.
0: So and before... Before we get into the the whiplash effect, because that's kind of um, interesting to this environment, but just to kind of fully delve into uh, your theory of that prices can be increasing and, and you know, not because of money printing. Uh, so in your example of uh, basically regulation, increasing the price of goods, which is widespread, I think you even had an example of you go into a restaurant, you don't realize that your steaks more expensive because they made them put in like a handicapped bathroom or something. Like, right. so it, it, that is widespread and it, it would be hard to really put a figure on what percentage of our money is just going to dumb regulations. Cause I bet it's pretty large. I bet if you were to actually look at most of your purchases, it wouldn't shock me if 20% went to waste because of some regulation that wasn't actually helpful or safe. You know what I mean? It was basically cronyism. Um, so I had Gene Epstein I don't know if you are familiar with Gene at all. He's a, he's a cool guy. Uh, and maybe this would be a fun debate down the line between, because I might be misrepresenting his point of view. Uh, but if I understood him correctly, it sounded like uh, individual price of, a, like any individual good can go up in price. Uh, for example, if like, you know, let's say we lost all, all Russian oil wasn't on the market. Let's just say they weren't able to sell to anyone and the price of oil went up. Well, then that would mean that unless more more money was uh, introduced into the system, I would have less money to spend on other goods. So like within, so yeah, I, 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 right away, you're like, that's not the way it works. So Mm -hmm. I'll hand it back to you. Cause that was the way I understood him was essentially the only way a wide range of goods can be going up in price is if people can afford to pay the higher price. The only way that that would exist is if there was basically money introduced to the system by way of, you know, the government and inflation.
1: let Let me paint a visual analogy for that. And I'm going to make it sound as appealing and compelling as I possibly can uh, first. So imagine if each price of each good were like a bucket or a a glass for holding water. And then the money supply is like a pitcher. And then we add money supply in. And so you can distribute the water into this price or this price or spread out a a drop into, into all the buckets. But there's only so much quantity of, of liquid that can be poured in and therefore it spreads out in any which way you want but if the if all the buckets are going up in level it's only because there's more water okay now, I think, and i tr- I try to do what so straw man is when you make a, a frivolous argument that you falsely attribute to your opponent that's not what he said but you reduce it to something frivolous and stupid and say well you're saying this and now i can easily knock it down i try to do what's called a steel man which is i try to frame my opponent's argument in terms that even he would say, yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. And then go knock that down, because if you can knock that down, then you've won the argument. So um, the problem is that view of of quantity of of money coming in and prices being like buckets or glasses of water just isn't even wrong. And I get that expression from uh, Wolfgang Pauli, early 20th century physicist, or somebody gave him a paper to read. He looked at it. You crumpled it up, threw it out, and said, this isn't even wrong. Um, So problem number one in comparing quantity of money to quantity of goods or money supply to goods supply is money as a stocks. So in the gold standard, money is a tonnage of gold. In the dollar system, money is, it's not really money, but we use it as if it were money, as a quantity of dollars. But goods as a flows, goods is like how many barrels of oil per day or per year, how many bushels of wheat per per day or per year, how many tons of copper per year. So we're comparing a stocks to a flows. That's like comparing distance to speed. They're not comparable in that way. Um, That's the first problem. The second problem is that it is not true that in order for oil prices to go up, there has to be a greater amount of money. It could just simply be that all goods have become scarcer. There's fewer people buying them um, because they can't afford it anymore. Because what had been in globalization, what had become um, high-quality, low-cost commodity, is suddenly becoming much rarer, much harder to get. Um, so imagine if you know all trade from Russia is completely uh, you know interrupted. One can imagine that you know those nesting Matryoshka dolls. One could imagine those things becoming quite an expensive luxury good because you can't get any more of them. So those few that are out there become essentially prized antiques and the price going up. Um, so when things become genuinely scarcer, if the money had, um, you know, holds its value, you'd expect prices to go up. And in, in times of increasing regulation, in times of increasing green energy restrictions, in times of increasing trade war and tariffs and war, war, and in times of COVID lockdown and then lockdown weblash, things are genuinely becoming scarcer, a lot scarcer. Anybody who's tried to buy um, a performance bicycle, like for people that are really into mountain biking or, or road biking, um, you know, knows that basically you can't get a bike and, uh, you know, they're back ordered for a year or something like that. There's so many things. My mom got a new bed and wanted to get a bed frame and or you know, like a whole bed set and that, you know, back order eight months or something. There's an actual genuine increase in scarcity because things that aren't available. So um the the few that are still on the market get bit up to unbelievable highs. It's not an increase in quantity of money. It's only rich people can afford, you know, really rich people can afford things that used to be um, you know, commonplace. So we're just generally impoverishing everybody. Um so I I just I just reject the argument down to its root theory that it's anything to do necessary. Now that said, the next aspect of quantity theory that everybody pictures is what if the, what if the government were literally printing paper bills and literally dropping those from helicopters? Well, we're,
0: we're almost pretty close to that. I think if you look at uh, 2020 to 2021, we had the largest ever increase uh, in the money supply, like in American history. And we actually did hand money to people. So it's not quite, you know, the helicopter money, but we're, we're pretty close to that.
1: So when, when they're actually doling out, and I use the word gifting cash, then absolutely that is gonna bid up prices. And what's important is that no production is being created. We're just gifting cash to consumers whose, you know, the whole point of the whole program is so that they can consume, they can spend it. So absolutely that will tend to drive prices up from where they would have been otherwise. But most of what goes on with the increase in what's what's called money is um, a bank has, let's say, a billion dollars in treasury bonds, and the Fed swaps with the bank and says, now you don't have a billion dollars worth of treasury bonds. Instead, now you have a billion dollars worth of reserves held on account with us at the Fed. And the bank doesn't, first of all, you can't spend Fed reserves anyway. But aside from that, the bank does not say, oh, Now we're rich and bonus out a billion dollars to go spend it. Um, When credit generally expands in the economy, it is borrowing, not gifting. Very, very big difference. So if I said to you, here's a hundred thousand dollars and free monies, what would you do? You might have a car, motorcycle, go to Las Vegas. I don't know what you would do with it. If I said, I'll give you a loan backed by everything you own in your life is going to be the collateral. And I want to see a business plan of what you're going to do with that loan. Then you're going to say, well, I'm going to um, spend on advertising and hire two more marketing people. And I'm going to start to build my business. Um, the money is spent in a very different way. So what, what the mechanism is in our economy generally for this credit expansion for the last 40 years is the interest rate ticks down. And every marginal business who has pretty close to a business case to borrow more to expand production, but not quite. Then they lower the interest rate, and now suddenly the business case clicks into, you know, it works. And then they borrow the money, and so every hamburger chain that's close to borrowing money but not quite at 4%, the interest rate ticks down to 3.9%, and suddenly their spreadsheet goes green at the bottom, and say, okay, now we're gonna borrow a million dollars and add another store in every metropolitan area
0: doesn't uh, in the so just to really simplify this and you can tell me if i have it wrong but when the government makes more funds available it also leads to an increase in supply because while people are going out to buy more goods the producers also have more money available to uh, invest in you know their factors of production and make more supply available so you end up with perhaps you end up with you know uh Prices are not going to go up because there's the uh, increase in money supply works in tandem with the lower interest rate. So you end up with a higher supply of goods to match the higher demand.
1: Well, I I agree with what you said on the um, supply side, but the increase in money supply isn't through printing and gifting three dollar bills to consumers.
0: So, okay, I, I I see what you're saying, because you're saying if you have helicopter money, then you agree that there would be inflation. If it's just a loose monetary policy, then that gets uh, that, that doesn't just go to consumers who are spending, it actually goes to suppliers who will increase supply.
1: It goes to, um, it's borrowed, not gifted.
0: Right, okay.
1: The borrowers, some, and obviously consumers are borrowing too, but a consumer who borrows, now that he has the debt, it changes his behaviors also. Uh, And that is, it makes him more reluctant to spend, he has to demand, he has to have an increased cash balance as a reserve. You know, you start out your career, this one, when when I started mine at 21, hopefully debt-free or pretty close to debt-free. So you didn't necessarily need um, a huge cash buffer. You start to accumulate, you know, you have car debt, some credit card debt, house debt and whatever. And, you know, prudence just simply demands you have a big cash buffer. So just you know, even even the people that did get get free money to spend changes their behavior a bit. But um, the the mechanism of the falling interest rate that's how this is driven. And the falling interest rate is an increase of borrowing, and largely, you know, borrowing by um, you know not individuals but by you know, corporations and institutions. Um, and then it goes into increased supply. Uh, so what you get is falling margins, falling return on capital. That if you and all your competitors borrow to build more hamburger stores, then unless everybody wants to eat more hamburgers, you just get a slack at the market where all the hamburger stores are half empty all the time, which is exactly the mode that we've been in for decades. Um, restaurants not generally crowded after 2008. Um, you know, even here in Phoenix, there's a huge difference between you know high season, which is like after Thanksgiving to before Easter is the good time of year here. And then before 2008, during that time, you needed a reservation in almost any restaurant, even the mediocre ones, post that almost never until, until, until the post-COVID environment and, and it changed. So you're right, in COVID there was a lot of gifting and free monies um, that, that obviously had an effect. And, and the whole point was, we're not going to let you work, we're going to force you to be idle and unproductive, but we're going to give you just as much purchasing power as you had before. Sure, absolutely. But that's not generally how monetary expansion works.
0: And and so, uh, I I mean, I think this would almost speak to your theory here, but uh, in the, I guess, the Austrian school, when you have all these people, you know, increasing these investments, uh, I mean, even in your example, it sounds like we're ending up with more supply than the demand can keep up with. So at some point, I, I mean, don't you end up with male investment, but I guess that wouldn't affect prices from an inflationary aspect. But how, how does that kind of fit in here? Would
1: yeah, write... it's a huge malinvestment. And all the all the companies, especially the ones who borrowed at higher interest rates earlier, right? So you borrow at 6% and you think you're pretty clever and you're putting the squeeze on the guy that borrowed at 7 because you have the same business but a lower cost. Right. And then they cut the interest rate from 6 to 5 and the next oh, guy wow. borrows puts the squeeze on you and they cut it to force. Everyone's just getting squeezed.
0: You're almost being punished if you're a good capitalist and forecasting that the market would need something because if the government comes in, like if you were actually early on that, then you'll probably get screwed if the government drops the interest rate and makes it more affordable than for, which is wild. It's literally the opposite of capitalism.
1: Right, so yeah, absolutely. Capitalism does not have a central bank. A central bank is plank number five in the Communist Manifesto right Um, don't even get me started on that rant but um so so yeah it is malinvestment all these companies are struggling to service their debts and the conventional theory you know holds that you lower the interest rate and ease their burden but actually you just increase their burden even more so yeah they're servicing that debt payment but it becomes harder and harder to make the revenues that or to make the to make the profits i should say you don't pay interest expense out of gross revenues you pay it out of net profits it becomes harder and harder to make the net profits because the lower you push the interest rate the more competitors are borrowing and jumping into your market and so nobody can make a margin and um you know we got to the point where now we have um, a very high percentage of corporations are so-called zombies the zombies you know it's slightly more complicated than this basically defined as uh, interest expense is greater than profit. So they can't really service their debts without borrowing. They can't even service, They can't even pay the interest without going deeper into debt and borrowing more. So imagine a consumer, you, you know, you take out all this credit card debt and then the interest with no principal, just the interest payment is a thousand bucks and you can't pay the thousand. So you take out a second credit card and borrow, get a cash advance against that to pay the interest on the first one, not even pay off the principal just to service the interest. Well, obviously that's not gonna go forever there's going to be a giant liquidation, you know, Austrian business cycle theory has a lot to say about that. Uh, But the the central bank keeps lowering the interest rate and trying to kick this can down the road. And um, apparently the can has a lot more kicks in it than most people would have would have thought.
0: You know. All right. So we've got, I, I think, uh, two of the four in terms of the, uh, the items that could be driving up prices outside of just, uh, government increasing its spending. I'll recap it real quick. So the first was, uh, basically, well, let's use your particular terminology. Cause I was just going to say government regulation pricing up goods, but you have, your term is unwanted, useless, uh,
1: useless ingredients,
0: useless ingredients, uh, which was followed by basically green energy policies, then just to throw in another item to recap here, uh, unless government's doing pure uh, helicopter money, if they're making funds available by borrowing and in low interest rates, it actually increases supply. Like that's where the spending is. So it shouldn't increase your, uh, um, it shouldn't be increasing pricing. So now we have two other items on your list.
1: So third one is the lockdown and the whiplash from the lockdown. So first we lock everybody down. We, Disrupt every supply chain in so many different ways. Um, ships are in the wrong places. You know, goods are stacking up in warehouses in Asia, and meanwhile, you know, retailers here are starved. Then we, um, you know, we cut that cable that had you know a million tons of tension on it. You know, you cut the cable. Well, it doesn't just drop to the ground. I mean, it parts with an incredible force and a whiplash. Uh, Anybody who's worked around ships knows you do not want to be anywhere near that if the cable suddenly parts um, and take your head off. Um, And so, you know, it's been quite a, uh, and and combining with, so these things are synergistic. And so combined with useless ingredients, you know, it makes it worse. So in LA, there's been all kinds of little things that have come out of why there's such incredible backlogs of ships, which they're slowly working off, but it takes a lot of time. you know, tremendous underinvestment in dock capacity technology. The union opposed technology because they thought it would kill jobs. So it's much more manual labor intensive process. They're only allowed to work 16 hours a day. They don't operate 24 hours a day. Shipping containers can only be stacked too high on and on and on with all the, you know, restrictions bottlenecks there. Now get back to the UK where the restriction that you can't domestically produce natural gas synergistically interacts with the domestic regulation that you can't use oil and coal anymore. You have to use natural gas. So one plus one equals, um, let's call it five. It's a big, out, you know, either it's much bigger than either of those alone would suggest. Now that has a synergistic effect with the supply chain disruptions where it becomes almost impossible to import Christmas tree ornaments or natural gas or anything else because the shipping industry is so messed up. And the shipping lanes are so messed up and the ports are so messed up. And now the UK has to import all of its natural gas uh, or else, because everybody needs natural gas because of this stupid regulation. So one plus one plus one now equals about 17 point something. It's becoming exponentially worse. And so the price of uh, energy in the UK absolutely skyrocketing, causing you know basically impoverishment of the people there, but it gets worse. Natural gas is the key ingredient used to manufacture nitrogen-based fertilizers. Can't pre- so the fertilizer plants announced this is already a couple of months ago that they were shutting down. It does, they can't make any money with that price of natural gas. So now you can't get fertilizer. So what's going to happen to the food crop? That's not affecting how people eat this winter. That this was already baked from you know from last spring and last summer. Um, but what's going to happen to the the harvest? you know, come this fall, and how are people going to eat in the UK, you know, uh, next winter. Uh, so the price of food could could shoot up to unimaginable highs relative to where it is now. Um, and uh, anyways, all of this is non-monetary and quite synergistic between these things. Finally is trade war. And so it isn't just tariffs, although the US has slapped all sorts of bizarre tariffs, you know, nominally, the, the pretext was, well, We're getting back to China because China is the bad guys, but we're tariffing Canadian lumber. And the Biden administration doubled the the tariff on Canadian lumber, I don't know if that was last October or November or somewhere around there. We're tariffing whiskey from Scotland. We're tariffing all kinds of weird things. What would this tariff do? So if you're buying two by fours at Home Depot, or if you wanna build a new house or do a remodel, you're gonna find that um, the contractor's gonna charge a lot more than he had before because, not just two by fours, but it's sheet goods. It's every cabinet's made from sheet goods. Everything's skyrocketing in price. This is a good example of a, a situation where you see both higher and lower prices simultaneously. Another market where we see that is um, chicken wings. And the third one I've discovered, I haven't read about. It, I've discovered personally is onion rings. A lot of restaurants you can't buy rings, you can't buy onion rings anymore. Um, so you have higher and lower prices. Um, at the same time, and the, the standard monetary inflation argument would not suggest that the farmers who produce the chickens are getting paid less per bird, while the consumers who are buying wings are paying more. That's not what the monetary inflation theory would would predict. It's exactly what's happening. So take a look at um, lumber tariffs as an example. You tariff the lumber coming into the U.S., consumer in America is going to pay more, obviously. What is that going to do to the price paid? To the sawmill in Canada, Sawmill's is going to have to charge a cheaper price. They're going to have to somehow come down on what they charge to be the you know the price will go up. Of course, the domestic lumber producers in America will happily raise their price as well, and the Canadian producers of lumber will have to come down so that their price plus the tariff roughly matches the the price of the domestic um, lumber supply, which means that the sawmill is being paid less which means the logger has to get paid less and the landowner whose timber is being harvested has to get paid less. So you've got a bunch of people in Canada on the other end of the supply chain who are getting squeezed who are making less per board or per log or whatever the metric may be at that level and the consumer paying more at the same time. Um, so all of this equates to um, you know, relentlessly higher prices, um, which everybody assumes is monetary in nature and, um, you know, very much isn't. So then what's the recommendation? Well, we want the Fed to hike interest rates. If you hike interest rates, you're going to force offline all the marginal producers of all the goods from hamburgers to lumber to everything else because you're increasing their cost of servicing their debt. Oh, uh,
0: I see what you're saying because it's not actually – and, and I, I have to rethink this. I have no objection at this point in time. I do have to – I'm going to have to give this a second listen. But in your estimation – It's not a monetary phenomenon that there's so much money uh, chasing too many goods. It's regulation and supply line issues. So if we start forcing out producers because they can't uh, service their debt, you're going to actually be removing more supply and driving up costs. You're going to actually be driving up prices.
1: Yeah. So the the final um, point I'll I'll put on the end of that uh, is from 1947, basically right after world war II, to 1981, we had a rising interest rate and consistently rising prices so it's just this curious thing that if, if if hiking the interest rate was somehow gonna get inflation under control, well, the more they hiked, the more rapidly. So the worst inflation was in the 1970s when interest rates were really going bananas. So if hiking interest rates was the cure, you know, the entire
0: period- that, Was that a catch-up though? Was there like a catch-up period that it just didn't, or- well,
1: you, know, there's, you know, you can make excuses for it.
0: Which- right what I
1: basically think that is, but you had a period of 34 years of rising rates and rising interest. And in my theory, those are not just an accident, those are not only correlated, there's causality, there's mutual positive feedback loops, and a ratchet effect, that is rising interest and rising prices go together and are mutually causal. And post 1981, we've had, if not falling prices, because of all these non-monetary factors, we've had at least soft prices, falling margins, um, and certain prices have absolutely fallen. So I'm gonna leave aside electronics and technology, which everyone knows the prices have fallen like a hundred thousand times. You know, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, this thing is a supercomputer and, you know, a supercomputer used to go for many millions of dollars. This That thing has a lot more power than a Cray did in, you know, the 1980s and 1990s. Um, just take Levi's 501 jeans. I recall in high school buying a pair of Levi's 501s for $50. I, I encourage anybody to go Google and say price of Levi's 501s today. You might be astonished to find the price is lower than what I paid when I was in high school. So inflation, I would say we have soft if not falling prices, and then useless ingredients and other things, you know, compensating for that or perhaps
0: overcompensating for it.
1: But Um, that's, that's the world. I
0: am, I am left with one question though. I, if, if we've got falling prices and the money that government makes available actually increases supply. So I understand that we've already kind of mentioned that you, you you will get mail investment, but it sounds like to some degree, this is a working formula that if the fed is making, you know, funds available to increase supply, Or they're keeping interest rates low, then we'll actually, you know, in a sense, consumers benefit because prices are coming down because there's more supply. Like it almost sounds like there, there maybe it, it, it's kind of that regular faulty regulation argument that that maybe they're too aggressive and so you end up with too much mail investment. But it sounds like to some degree, it's a working system.
1: Well, um, I I guess it's kind of like if you're a low value you know, unskilled laborer and then they suddenly pass a minimum wage law and that doubles your wage. You might think that's good until there's other problems down the road. And so I I have a little rant uh, to offer on this idea of consumer prices. So I say, imagine if the entire medical profession really only understood temperature and fever. No matter what was wrong with you, you go into the office and you're like, Doctor, I feel like I'm going to die. I want to die. The pain is so intense. I feel like this is horrible. So he says, take this man's temperature, and it comes back 98.6, which is normal. So he says, nothing wrong with you. Get it. Get the hell out of here. Imagine if that was the state of medicine. I mean, we'd basically say these are witch doctors. These aren't doctors, because you know you could have I don't know a bullet in your in your abdomen that could be you know slowly bleeding out. You could have cancer. There's a lot of different things. I'm not a doctor, but I know there are things, things that can kill you that do not cause a fever as one of their symptoms. So if that was the only thing you could look at, you wouldn't be a very competent doctor. Well, our monetary doctors, everything is consumer prices, consumer prices, consumer prices, maybe GDP and, and um, uh, unemployment you know, will be thrown in there as well. And so you're right, if, if that's what you look at, and that's the only thing you look at, falling. it's probably falling interest rates, not low interest rates, which is a distinct issue but falling interest rates, the interest would always has to be going lower, um, absolutely causes softer falling prices. So from a consumer price standpoint, that's great. That's wonderful. Problem is there's all sorts of other, um, uh, I guess they'd be called unintended consequences. Not my favorite term, but we'll just go with that for a minute. There are all sorts of unintended consequences to lowering the interest rate. And so I would—I would, so obviously the, the, the first one that one should be pointing to is what it does to the savers. So you know, let's say you're in your 20s, you have a job, and um, you know, iPhones. You've never gotten more bang for the buck in iPhones, and clothing, and you know, all the consumer goods that you buy. You can never save for retirement because you can't get any interest on your savings. So they're absolutely crushing you. So I would say that what too low interest rates does is it feeds the savers to the consumers through the through the producers. So the savers are being fed to the consumers and in the sense of eating them alive. And so that would seem to be great for the consumers until you realize that, you know, to be a consumer, you're also a producer yourself and you're also a saver. And so it's destroying your ability to save. It's saying, live for the here and now with no thought, in fact, no way to plan for the future. Is that really a healthy thing? So it's, it's created a, you know, you've heard of the prodigal son, it's created a prodigal society. Um, there's a quote from Keynes that I, I talk about a lot where most of the gold people would know the first part where he says there's no sure way to overthrow the capitalist order, which means overthrow civilization. When you have a pure pure and perfect communism like North Korea, that isn't purely civilization anymore. That's uh, just about near-death experience for, for anybody who's forced to suffer under that. There's no sure way to overthrow the capitalist order than by debauching the money, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on. Um, and at the end he says, and it does so by engaging the hidden force of economics, which means incentives in favor of destruction and not one in a million can diagnose, you know, how their world is being destroyed. And, um, most people assume he means rising consumer prices. Everybody talks about inflation all the time right now. I'm old enough to remember the late seventies as a kid, everybody talked about inflation every day. It was on the nightly news five days a week. So either Keynes was stupid. And thought nobody would notice if consumer prices are going up at 15% a year, or he meant something else. And I think what he meant was, and and he talks about driving the interest rate down to zero as the ideal policy. The process of driving the interest rate down to zero is going to make soft consumer prices or falling. I don't think he would have necessarily predicted the rise of this incredible regulatory state, um, you know, back in his day. Um, So he predicted falling consumer prices and rising asset prices which means endless bull markets who could complain about if the stock market's going up people pointed that as evidence the economy is good so he's going to have good economy everyone's profiting from the rising asset prices consumer prices are you know softer actually falling and this is how he this is his plan for destroying our world um so I, I think he was a genius I mean evil but I think he was a genius and able to see to see this and his critics generally don't um, so yeah, it does result in good for the consumer, but what a terrible, terrible price! I guess it's like getting a job promotion, but you sold your soul to the devil. <laughs> All is right. that really a good? Uh, is Faust really making a smart bargain?
0: So we're we're kind of uh, we're at an interesting point here in this conversation because we're looking at the at our currency and we're going, hey, it's going to be okay. Uh, we're looking at the ability of the dollar to, I guess, still finance its debt. We're going, they're going to be all right. We're looking at inflation and we're saying, Hey, it's actually more issues in the supply lines. And yet we're, we're still taking the perspective that, you know, I, I guess we're not really within a working system and that you have a solution, which is kind of switching us over to gold. So I'll hand it back to you. If you could tell me kind of, even within the framework of what we outlined that the dollar is going to be okay. And inflation's not, you know, even though you, you just told us a couple unintended consequences, but maybe you can give us the bigger picture of what is so flawed or what might collapse in this system and what you're building with uh, the uh, interest bearing your ability to lend in gold with interest, uh, which I'll allow you to explain. I'm sure I don't have that hundred percent right and how that's a potential solution.
1: So just just to clarify one minor point, I'm not necessarily saying the dollar is fine. I'm saying that none of the other stinkier poops can replace the dollar poop.
0: At least at the moment, uh, or, or like, right.
1: So, uh, but gold in, inevitably will one way or the other. So the key to gold, I mean, any currency ultimately, is you have to be able to finance production. You know, it's it's all well and good to say I bought Bitcoin at a thousand, it went up to forty thousand, I sold it, now I can buy all these consumer goods. But those consumer goods have to be financed. If there's no such thing as finance, if nobody can lend and nobody can borrow, you're back to a dark ages level of subsistence where you have a tiny little village and half a dozen farm family farms around it and everybody's um, you know, subsisting literally. And then if you have a bad year, you know, there are people who who dropped out of malnutrition. Like that's the level and you have one blacksmith and one cooper and one cobbler for, you know, for the village, Um, you have to be able to finance production, which means borrowing and lending. So there has to be a way to borrow and lend. And in the case of the gold standard, there's no circulation of gold unless unless there's an interest rate. So without interest, what do people do? They buy the gold and then they hide it somewhere. It disappears under the mattress, under the floorboards, into the safe hidden in the sock drawer people put it in their freezers. They put it all sorts of different places. Some of them bring it to professional depositories, but it doesn't circulate. It's a dry asset sitting on a shelf, gathering dust. People sell it when the price goes down or the price goes up, or there's a change in, you know, circumstances, you know, the old man dies, the kids inherit it, they need money to buy a house. They sell the gold, but it doesn't circulate. It's a moribund debt asset and all of Warren Buffett's criticisms of it. Uh, which are disingenuous, uh, I have to say, but basically true. Doesn't have any utility. Doesn't not productive, not procreative, etc. Interest is the thing that makes the monetary system tick, and interest is the thing that will pull gold into circulation. So if you can't get interest, why would you lend your gold? Obviously, you wouldn't. If you can get interest, now it becomes uh, a negotiation. Well, what's the interest rate? What's the risk I'm taking to get that rate? So. In the context of monetary metals, and I don't want to make this an advertorial, we pay interest on gold. And we do that by putting the gold to work in productive enterprises, bullion dealers, refiners, mints, jewelers, high-tech manufacturers. uh, Oh, so
0: then people that actually are not concerned with potentially the volatility of gold. Because I might say, like, in other words, if I was opening up a factory tomorrow, I might not want to take that loan in gold. Because if I'm earning dollars and let's say gold goes through the roof... I'm like, shit, how the hell am I going to pay off this loan? But I guess if you're actually lending the gold to people that are utilizing actual gold, then that's the, I guess the volatility of it would be against the dollar would be less concerned, or do I have that total? No, it's the
1: other way around. So if you have gold in your business, right, um, to borrow dollars to to buy the gold then becomes that same risk
0: that's right, that's what I'm saying. So for you, you're able to create the market with the interest in gold because you're wor- working with people that actually use the gold. So like they're not as concerned in the volatility risk. Maybe we're saying the so same they thing. we are, are
1: concerned, but the volatility bites the other way.
0: Right, 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 right. The traditional
1: right. business has to borrow in dollars because they're selling their product for dollars It's a dollar world. Right. If, you're, if you have a million dollars worth of uh, gold jewelry inventory in stock at all times and you borrow a million dollars... Then, if the price goes down enough, you're broke, you're insolvent, right? But if you lease the gold from, from monetary metals that removes the price risk, which to you is an existential threat, the gold owner was happy to take the price risk anyway, but instead of paying, so, you know, if you, if you own gold, you've got three choices today, you can either store it at home, which means it's uninsured. And if you have a bad fire, flood, home invasion, whatever. You're gonna it's gonna be lost. You can put it in a professional vault or depository. Typically, you're gonna pay 0.75%, 75 basis points a year for the storage. If the gold price is going up 15% a year, that's that's fine. If the gold price is going sideways, that kind of gets old. You're paying that's you know, it's expensive and it, it bleeds you slowly. Or you can put it in monetary metals where there's no storage cost, and instead you're getting two or three percent interest on the positive side. And so you're increasing the amount of gold that you have. And usually the one thing that gold people want more than their gold is to have more gold. So it's, it's it's, It's a pretty simple proposition. But what we're doing, it's not some sort of financialized play where we go to the futures market and do some sort of arbitrage trickiness, sell your gold and buy gold future and whatever. No, 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 no. This is a physical leasing program where there's a jeweler, there's a high tech manufacturer that has the gold on premises we can go and we have the right, we have the, you know, can go on premises, scrape all the gold, put it on a scale, and it would weigh greater than the lease amount. And, but we're doing something productive with it. We're doing something to help the gold industry with it. And um, we're generating return. And this is the first baby steps towards the gold standard, which I define as, any, when, a gold standard is when anybody who wants to can deposit their gold and earn interest on their gold in gold. Then that's a working gold standard, and this is the first step. We have great expansion plans for all the other things we want to do. So this is a leasing program. We also have a gold lending program, uh, which is for accredited investors only. We have all sorts of other things we want to do to begin to re, you know, reutilize gold. That today it's it's a dry asset, and we need to get to that world. This is the, this is the first step. But there's a, a very simple value proposition: which is get paid interest on your gold in gold.
0: All right, this was uh, we're, we're a little bit over the hour marks. So I don't want to hold you too much during the workday. Thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, absolutely fascinating. I learned a lot. I'm gonna have to give some. Uh, I'm gonna have to re-listen and also reread some of your pieces to more wrap my head around uh, um, the take on inflation as a in not as, like uh, kind of opposite of uh, really everything I've learned. So I just gotta give that one a little bit more thought. Let it uh, settle in. Um, where, uh, where can people find you? How can they stay in touch?
1: Momentary metals.com. Um, on Twitter at real Keith Wiener.
0: Excellent. All right. Thanks so much. And, uh, I hope we can do it again down the line.
1: Looking forward to it. Thanks, Rob.
0: All right. Awesome. Have a good one. Bye-bye.